Radio. This is your host, Trevor Koretz, and I'm super excited about today's guest. Our second guest has been on the show once before, episode 180. If you go to evolutionary.org forward slash podcast, you can listen to our previous episodes. We have over 200 office episodes. Joining us today for the second time is Dr. Scott Stevenson. Hey, hey, we're live with video this time. Yeah, we're we're live with video. Speaking of which... Steve is uh, going through some technical difficulties. Steve, do you want to chime in on that? Well, the good news, guys, is most of you are, are listening to this through audio. The video is only on the YouTube channel, so it's not even an issue. But those of you who can't see me, I'm invisible right now to you. That's because uh, Windows basically isn't compatible with my headset. So, But the audio thing, um, hopefully you guys um, are enjoy listening to me um, through my iPhone here. So... I'm, I'm very old school when it comes to technology, guys. I'm very, uh, I'm very dumb when it comes to that. I'm missing the geek gene. So we can thank Bill Gates. Well, yeah, stop, stop, Dr. Scott Stevenson, we're so happy to have him back. What have you been up to since we last had you on, doctor? Gosh, well, I, the, the dog that I, I still have the dog that was causing audio and other uh, technological issues last time because I had to vacate the house. She's with me with my two other dogs. We're on a road trip. We uh, drove out from Florida to the Olympia. And I'm actually in Arizona right now seeing friends. So how did that work out with the Olympia? I got to ask you, I've never been to the Olympia, but I do know it's been in Vegas for quite a while now. They have it in Vegas. And I'm going to ask you about that as well. But how does that work going to the Olympia? Um, Do you have to buy a ticket? Do you get to watch it in the crowd? How does that work exactly? I would imagine it's very hard to score a ticket to it. Oh, no, the tickets are easy to get. It and doesn't – I don't think either night at the show it was actually sold out. For what it's worth, Steve, I think, at least for me, you're coming through about twice as loud as Trevor. So other listeners, maybe um, – because it sounds like you're trying to over-amplify your voice. It might be too much because I'm having to adjust back and forth. So I don't know if – are you, Trevor, are you getting that on your end as well? Yeah, Steve's really loud. He's a bit of a loud mouth. Okay. <laughs> so yeah well because well, i you know you'll get a complaint because I've, I've had the same issue happen so we'll we'll cut that off right now um the uh olympia gosh it's at the orleans it's been the orleans it's at the mgm grand i think for a while it's been at the orleans which is your it's not the top casino hotel um but they have a decent arena and it's easy to score tickets pretty much they have vip tickets there was two levels like $700 for the full package, which means you get to go to everything. They have a gala after the show. The final's on Saturday. I think you get expo tickets for that. Um, it's pricey, you know. I think the I, I stay at an Airbnb. I've always stayed someplace other than the Orleans, except maybe one year. But um, getting just tickets to the show aren't hard. The interesting thing is, um, and this is the same way at a lot of shows, it's a, bo- it's a bodybuilding show. You're looking at a human being. So literally, unless you're in one of the premier tickets, unless you're l- like within 20 or maybe 40 feet, you're better off just watching the Jumbotron. And I've had like some of the best tickets down in the orchestra section 
where you would think you'd see things as well as anyone. And I would just end up watching the Jumbotron because people are too far away. So what people saw on TV, although every once in a while you can get a little view, there's always a difference between what you see in video or definitely pictures compared to real life was probably as good as 90% of the people who paid for tickets. It's kind of just the idea of being there, you know, and just watching all the celebrities walk past you and just sort of being part of the atmosphere that people like. That's the cool part I'll, of it. I'll let Trevor jump in. Can you hear me better now, by the way? Yeah, you're a little bit more quiet. Yeah, I can hear you. No yeah, more further. But I want to ask you because, you know, historically the Olympia has been like in different countries around the world. And then now it's been in the United States, New York, Orlando, I think Boston maybe one year. And, you know, it hasn't been around the world. Do you agree with that? Because I think it'd be pretty cool to have it in a different country every year. What am I missing on that? Because why Vegas, all places? What's what's so special about Vegas? It's so cheap to fly to Vegas. They probably have – they may. I have no idea what Robin Chang has done as far as arranging that and why they do that. But you can get to Vegas from anywhere really, really cheaply. Um, they keep having it in that same place. Yeah, they had it in South Africa when Arnold won it one year. It would be great to be able to travel. They've had it, you know, um, I think – was it Sweden maybe? One of Dorian Yates' wins – They've had it overseas, of course, but it's been, oh, God, at least I want to say 15 years since that was the case. The, so I think it's just because it's Vegas. Vegas is because of the expo. They need that huge expo hall. Yeah. I mean, th- there are other expos they could have because they don't fill it out, but you're right. I think it's probably cheaper and it's cheaper to get people there, which means more people pay for it. And I mean, when it comes down to it, I could run down the list of competitors. At least half are Americans, I think, on average. So, you know, if you could do a democratic vote as to where they should have it, that would be. But I mean, in the past, hasn't it been most Americans as well back, back when it was in other countries? Yeah. So, I mean, I would think it'd be pretty cool, like to fly to Australia one year, fly to, you know, see the different countries and kind of have it more international. I just, I'm just curious because, I mean, I think they have it in Vegas just for the strippers. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> all the bodybuilders like to get, you know, strippers and no, I'm I'm kidding. <laughs> they like Did to do party. that when you were there. Do some parties? No, I don't go. I don't go to. I haven't been to a strip club since a bachelor party <laughs> like twenty plus years ago. Uh, okay. When I went to Canada, Trevor, I went to visit Trevor. Trevor, the first night, he's like, "Steve, let's hit a strip club." I'm like, "Trevor, I'm not into that shit, dude. That's you. You know, you go to strip club on your own. I'm not going with you. You know what I'm saying? That, I'm not into that kind of stuff. I'm a very straight guy. You know what I'm saying?" <laughs> Why do I not don't entirely trust you, given that 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 Cheshire cat grin on your face, man? <laughs> what else is there to do in Canada, right? That I, I don't know. I actually, when I was when I was eighteen, I got a part time job bartending at a strip club, and it was basically the summer before I started engineering. So I was thinking, like, this would be the best summer ever. I can't believe I landed a job bartending oh. at a strip club. How wrong you were! <laughs> it, it almost turned me gay. It. It, I don't know, like I don't know how much people know about strip clubs, but the agency that all the strippers work for is run by Hell's Angels. So most of the strippers have some sort of substance addiction, and they're just working to pay off their addiction. And just seeing how depressed those women were and what they would do for money, like it, it literally almost turned me gay. That was the worst idea I ever had. I, I take back my previous statement when when I lived here in Arizona previously, I, I went with a friend of mine who's now a therapist. She had literally a, um, 
uh, a kind of a, a project she had, to, she had to do. She had to go to a, a, went to a couple strip clubs so she could psychoanalyze essentially what was going on there and talk with them. And um, yeah, there's, it seemed like there was sort of three kind of categories. There's women that have, they've just got horrible drug addictions and this is a really, really quick way to do that. Um, then there's women that just are making their way through the school or what have you. I mean, I've known some people who've worked at strip clubs, women who work at strip clubs who just, this is a just quick and easy way to make money and they don't judge. They don't care like the, the ethical and the sliminess and whatever other issues that come they don't care about it. And then actually I've, I knew one person, she was a neighbor of mine who really enjoyed, she had this, um, she kind of liked the way that she could control and manipulate men. It was in part because of what had happened to her recently. And she liked to, it was like she was exacting her revenge on the male of the species. Oh, um, dude, they, they, part of my language, they totally fuck with the men. Oh, what yeah. they do is they get their phone numbers and they'll be like, Oh, I want to visit you so bad, baby, but I'm at work. You should come. Pure manipulation. Like, yeah. It's, it's horrible. But it's they, so unreal. It's like, it's like, oh, come on. It's like, that's why I can't, that's why I just can't fathom how anyone could actually get aroused from any of that. It's just so obviously insincere to me. It's like, oh, come on, you don't, you're not in the least bit attracted to me. You're just yeah. wanting my money. Like, what are we talking about here? I don't get it, but you know, it, people can fantasize. So that's obviously. Well, doctor, not, not all of us are good looking like you and a doctor. Yeah. You right. That's, yeah, you get a different girl every night from what I've heard. People like me, we got to pay. You know what I'm saying? We got to pay for some action. <laughs> hey, this is not where I'm going with this podcast. You guys. All right. Are <laughs> All right. Yeah, we're just messing around. So Dr. Stevenson, the, one, the reason I want to get you back on this podcast is you wrote a very interesting book called Being Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. And yes. very, very interesting philosophy. The first question I have for you is where did the idea to write this book even come from? Um, actually I started working on this with someone else, um, like over three years ago. And, and that person decided to do some other things. And, and I had, we were trying to figure out something to do, um, some sort of a, a book to write and something that was kind of nutrition oriented. And I came up with that concept and it's, it was basically sort of the, I was thinking about what is, what is needed in the industry right now? Like what, this was just a few years ago, and I think it's obviously still the case. What is, um, you can think of it in various, kind of philosophically, ethically, from, from my perspective on the value of this endeavor, what are people missing? What could people be getting that they're not getting? And then also from a, and I'm not, I'm a great business person when it comes to other people, not as much for myself, but like what also would, would possibly sell? Like I, I could write a book that no one would buy and that might be a nice uh, achievement for myself. So the thing that I'd been noticing and seeing and is still the case is that now versus 20 years ago when I started bodybuilding and competing, um, it's almost as if, and I've run into this like literally so many times, like hundreds of times, people presume that they need to have a coach, that this endeavor can't be done without a coach. It's sort of like, you know, we think of like American football or any team sport. You just have a coach. Um, but you could actually do those sports without a coach per se, but that's, that's really because you have a number of people, you need to have some sort of organizing force. But a bodybuilding is really an individual endeavor. You can have teams, team whatever, team John, team Bob, team Susie. But 
it's you. And there's so much value to be derived from the exploration and the learning and the manipulation of things that you do. Um, and in my, this is my opinion. Some of this has to do with sort of a, it's probably my proclivity, maybe genetically and my family of origin. I learned to sort of be sort of self, self, um, very independent and self-subsistent. I found a lot of value in like when it gets down to crunch time, trying to figure out how to make those decisions that were really tough because then being able to do that, it made everything else seem much easier. And, and I learned a lot in that way. So there was some carryover. There's an old notion that I picked up on many, many years ago that competitive endeavors, sporting endeavors, athletics should somehow, um, they should be sort of a microcosm for what we do in real life if they're to have value and that there should be some way in which those uh, experiences carry over the rest of your, of your life otherwise. And gosh, I mean, dieting down for show, every time I've done one, literally, I mean, I can recount the different kinds of experiences I've had. There's, it's, there's always been, it's always been a growth process for me. And I think when a lot of people take on a coach, they basically, they rob themselves of that opportunity to a certain degree. Not necessarily, they're still doing the dieting, they're still doing the training, they still have to, they still have to do the quote-unquote suffering, but a lot of the decision-making, a lot of the, what's going on uh, in terms of day-to-day dealing with things, if you have to rely upon your own wherewithal, you grow from that, you benefit from that. And it's hard to do when you've got all this, especially now with social media and the internet, there's so much information that's all over the place. Like if you wanted to pick up, even imagine someone with the YouTube videos that cover almost every topic, but they're all over the place. They're not organized in, in one way, shape or form. It's kind of like, imagine a map. I mean, in my promo video for the book, I, I called it a map or a compass that's been like shredded like a puzzle. And in order to kind of find your way along the landscape of getting ready for a show or improving yourself as a bodybuilder, you'd have to piece all those things together and just hope that they were pieced together in the right way. Well, I wanted to try to create a map so that people realize, okay, here I am. I'm in Connecticut. I want to get to Brazil. I, need, I, got, a, I got a map. I don't have to hire someone to take me there. I can actually make that trip on my own. Here's a map to do it. I'm at X percent body fat in the off season. I don't like the way I look and only I feel. I want to get up on stage for whatever, whatever reason my driver person. And I want this to be something that really deeply, profoundly improves my self-esteem, improves my ability to, to handle life struggles, what have you. I need some kind of a starting point, something to, to get me there. And that's what the book's about, to be a map, to be a compass, so to speak. Before That's we turn to some questions, one question I have for you, Dr. Stevenson, is you're a smart guy, right? I mean, you got a PhD, you, you, you know what you're doesn't doing. doesn't always mean anything, but yeah. Okay, anyways. Right. When you look in the mirror, you're probably not happy with what you see. Even though you're jacked as shit, as <laughs> bodybuilders, we look in the mirror and, and you know, like, yeah. I can have the best chest and abs in the world, but I'd, I'd look in the mirror, I'd be like, well, my calves suck, or, or something like that. My question is, being your own coach, wouldn't you run into issues of not being subjective because as type A people, we're our own worst critics? That's, that's one of the glorious growth processes that comes 
from battling through that struggle is because one of the simple things you can do is think to yourself, because there are a lot of people who's, who are really good coaches, they just can't coach themselves. So you can simply step outside of yourself as a third person, say, what would I do if I had person X in my shoes in terms of changing the diet, in terms of changing the training, what have you? So you, you can depersonalize and, and dare I say, e- even perhaps dissolve the ego association that you have with your body and the, in the endeavor to a certain degree. And uh, the ego is, in a, in a Buddhist tradition, for instance, ego is, is, is kind of a problematic little booger. He kind of takes control and uh, allows us to have attachments to things which it's been said are the root of all suffering. So you can step outside of that to a certain degree and, and learn to see yourself and see the process in the, in the grander scheme of things. One of, the, um, I mean, one of the things that has happened several times, it's sort of funny, you'll, you can become so self-involved with your dieting process. And, you know, like people will talk about beast mode and going to war and all the things that um, come with, uh, you know, sort of the pain that comes with dieting down and fighting through tough workouts, what have you. And um, if you really look at that, like that's, it's sort of silly in a certain sense because it's all choice. It's all our decision to do that. So you have, you're forced, you're, you're sort of in a compression chamber when you're coaching yourself, you're forced to step outside of that intense ego involvement in, in the journey that you're taking and uh, see it from an objective standpoint. And then you start to realize that, gosh, this is not all that, all that super duper important. This isn't really that big of a deal, whether or not, you know, somebody else on stage is more, more shredded glutes than I have or whatever the case may be. Is, um, is another negative emotion jealousy and, and as well? Because we see that a lot of fitness as well. And it, it's really not fair uh, to a person to feel jealousy because we all have such drastically different genetics. Do you feel like that's another thing besides, a, besides the ego thing? I have a, a pretty large section in the book, and I have a, um, a lecture I've given several times. I really like to give it. It's, it's why you don't look like a pro. And it's about the genetic components that are involved in, uh, in this endeavor. And yeah, when you, when you step outside of that, it's, it's an interesting. I've got so many personal uh, uh, accounts of things that have sort of made me come to realize that, yeah, genetics are huge. One is having trained with and, and now helped out and coached Dave Henry for, it's been like 13 or 14 years now. And um, I was just telling this story because Dave, of course, did the Olympia this last weekend. And he's in Korea now getting ready to compete again. And I told the story um, when it was 2009 and Dave had won the Mr. Olympia 2008. And I was dieting down to try to win the Mr. Arizona. And we had ch- we were both kind of deep in our diet and we just got done posing. We we're helping each other through posing and and we're just kind of standing there and we're you know pretty friggin' tired and kind of wiped out and Dave just totally honestly just kind of looks in the mirror and just kind of like leans his head to me and he says he's like you know like we've been doing like we've been training together for years now and really kind of doing all the same stuff and it's 
it's amazing how different our bodies are. And I looked at him, I said, Dave, you're the reigning champion, Mr. Olympia. I can't even win the Mr. Arizona. Yes, there is a substantial difference between the two of us. And so I got to see that day in and day out. And yet jealousy is really, um, uh, it's a natural human trait to have, but it really doesn't serve us anyway. Um, except, except if you can recognize that some, someone has or has done something that you're capable of doing that you haven't actualized. But then it's no longer jealousy. Now you've just recognized that there's something that you could be doing that you're not doing, which is that there's some achievement you could have. But in the negative, jealousy, yeah, that's, it, it's obviously part of, part of this. We're, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're hierarchical in nature, of course. So we want to be, uh, you know, the top dog. Um, gosh, I've had, I've talked there. I had a, a friend who's a bodybuilder. His, he, he used to just strive on the idea of like walking in a room and have, having everyone look at him, you know, and, and just like drop their jaw and that kind of thing. And, and um, I was like, wow, what a, like, what a, what a horrible sort of place to be in because that is so fleeting. That'll be gone in no time flat. Um, before we get into some user, um, I'm sorry, member questions, Trevor's going to um, ask you, I want to follow up on this a little bit. Do you have any advice? Because I just feel like in the gym, um, a lot of people look at others who may look, you know, really good to them and they feel a sense of jealousy. What advice do you have to those people who feel that way? Besides what you said about, Hey, it's a, you know, we all have different genetics, but what is something right. they can do? Because I feel like if, if you're going to keep feeling like that, when you go to the gym, you will never, you will never yeah. see any goals that you set for yourself. And it's not right. just in fitness, but it's in anything in life because mm -hmm. you know, we're all are different. I mean, in, in anything you do. Yeah. A couple, a couple things. One, I would say if you were that person, you would look exactly like they, they do and you would be who they are essentially. And the converse is true. So they are who they are, um, sort of by dint of fate, by the luck that they were born when they were, and that life's uh, challenges and life's experiences have brought them to that place. So being jealous of someone is, is kind of like, it's almost, it makes as much sense as, you know, you roll a dice and they roll a dice, a die and you roll a die and they roll a four and you roll a five and four is a better number. It's like, okay, that doesn't, it does, it does nothing but bring you suffering and pain to wish that you were someone else. But what you can do is say, okay, there's a reason why I'm feeling this contrast. There's something that they've got that I haven't got. So what am I going to do about it? It's kind of like you, your, your car is got a flat tire. So you can just go bonkers, start kicking the car, get pissed, which doesn't really serve you anyway. And you're basically just, you're just beating yourself up. You're just suffering and doing that. Um, or maybe you can go through a little bit cause that's, that's normal. Like it's, you know, you don't have to become a, um, you know, some enlightened being, but you know, go through the fact that you know, this friggin' sucks. I hate the situation. And then you can do something about it. So take that information. Okay. That person is phenomenal. Um, what do I know about them? Well, you can go up and ask them, Hey, can I talk to you when you're done training? I got some questions for you. I just want to ask you look friggin' phenomenal. I'd like to learn from you. Or do you have a website or an Instagram? How can I, so you can pick their brain. Um, 
or you could try to figure out, you know, if you know something about that person, a lot of times we're jealous of the people we know. And the reasons for the jealousy are, like, are pretty silly. The person's always been, had more muscle or been faster or been smarter or what have you. They're just like that. So that's a total, total waste of energy. You're just hurting yourself in doing that. It does nothing but just cause yourself undue pain to, uh, to cause that. So figure out what is it about that person that they have that you haven't got. And then figure out how you can do something about that. The person may be unapproachable. You may not know them. But as long as in the gym is a hard thing because you go up to someone in the gym while they're training and chances are they're not going to, want to talk to you. So if you go up and say, hey, can I talk to you when you're done training? That's what I might say to that person. Or just friggin' wait. If you're really motivated, say, I'm going to take this energy, this jealousy, this negative energy, I'm going to transform it. Tell you what, I'm going to finish my workout. And I'm just going to wait for that person on the way out and very politely ask them if I could ask them a few questions on the way to their car. If they're an asshole, well, then you've got nothing to be jealous of. They're an asshole, right? So you probably wouldn't want to be them anyway. So you learned something there already. But maybe you'll get something from them. And I mean, I, I answer those questions all the time, like all over the place. I have like kind of a pat answer I can give to most people that, that rings a bell when they say, hey, you know, I just can't lose this flab or they grab their belly or I just can't get in the gym. I'm not motivated by it or what have you. And I, and I give that answer. It's really easy to do. So someone who's, um, who's, who's the object of jealousy probably has been asked those questions already. And if they're not an asshole, they probably got a good answer that they can get across in a couple minutes, I guess. So one, one thing I've learned doing this podcast and interviewing, you know, over 200 of the best bodybuilders on the planet is that, usually the most successful people are the nicest people you'll ever meet. They just have this positive aura around them. And I really think like there's something to that. And like most of the people, you know, who we've interviewed on this podcast who, you know, have been on the Mr. Olympia stage on their own supplement company, you know, have multiple, multiple, you know, letters behind the name, things like that. They're the nicest people you'll ever meet after doing the podcast, they sent me an email saying, you know, I was so, so thankful to be on your show. I had a blast. If you ever want me to come on again, I'd love to do it. Um, you know, I had, I've had emails, you know, from our listeners saying like, Hey, I reached out to so-and-so they emailed me back. I couldn't believe that they actually took the time of their day to email me their questions. So I really think like, if you have a positive aura and a positive energy about you, good things are going to come to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the first you know, the other thing about jealousy, too, is, and this is like a personal work thing. I'm, I'm big on counseling, and, like, this is, this is what I've sort of used the whole bodybuilding thing in part to do is that you get, you, you glean perspective on how you approach life when you're under the, under the pressure chamber of prepping for a show or what have you, um, is that if you're jealous of someone um, then there's probably, some, there's, that's, I think at, root, at the root of that, I'm not going to try to define this in psychological terms, but I think at the root of that is probably some, some insecurity because you think that in some way, shape, or form, you're inferior and they're better than you. So go for that. Why do you feel that way? What makes you jealous of someone, um, especially when you can't ever become that person? Like, literally, that's a physical impossibility. Um, so that may, other than going up to that person in the gym, you might take a step back and say, okay, what is it about me that's making me jealous of someone else? And, and that will, you know, that's the root. 
you know, in Chinese medicine, they talk about the branch and the root, you know, you can treat the branch with kind of the symptoms, you know, and you could, you could keep asking people for questions. And let's say you're someone who does have crappy genetics, Steve. So um, you're never going to look like the people that you might be jealous of. You can keep asking those questions and you'll just continually not have the physique that you might ultimately desire. Um, so then you're just left with dealing the root with the root of reality and the root of why you maybe are, are insecure in some way, shape or form. So that's what I would suggest people do. That's, that's a whole other show and a whole other topic. So Dr. Stevenson, we've got quite a few listener questions on genetics and no topic, no, no discussion about being your own bodybuilding coach would be <laughs> genetics. Having trained the best, you know, having been in the sport a long time, how much do you feel genetics really do play a role? Because, you know, you hear the people who say, ah, genetics is an excuse, and you hear the other people who say, no, you really do need the proper genetics to become an IFBB pro. Mm. There are non-responders. There are people that, you know, in the course of at least short-term studies, they'll train for a month or two months, and, and they don't respond. Like, literally... They won't gain muscle. They won't increase aerobic power. So that's a possibility. There are some people um, where that may not be possible. Now, if we talk about maybe like maybe for the, some of the women's divisions, let's maybe a bikini competitor, I think that's possible. If maybe you're not talking about the IFBB, a lot of people can lose body fat, but that's even naturally hard. So there's, there are going to be some people where it's impossible to get a pro card unless they, you know, just look for any way, shape, or form just to get the card. But there'll be some changes that are literally impossible. You can become an IFBB pro now much more easily than you could um, just 20 years ago. You can bang away for, for decades, let's say, someone who's a bodybuilder. And um, I've had people I know do this who kind of recognize they, they were, they, maybe they were a bodybuilder and they went into classic physique, so they were and they snuck in at the right time and they got their pro card or their women's physique division in the, and they won in the master's category. So that's possible. I've known people who have gotten their cards with physiques that would never have earned them physiques, um, pro cards in the past with those physiques. So they're at one end of the spectrum there are people that are not going to be able to make tremendous gains. Um, Let's say the top 15 at the Mr. Olympia Every person at Top 15 Miss Olympia, would you say, has good genetics, right? I, that's one of the things I do in that, um, in that lecture that I mentioned, why you don't look like a pro. I went, looked back, I think it was 2015 maybe, and I went and did my best to dig in the placing records of the top 10 at that Olympia from the first show they did to when they got their pro card. And the average was three and a half years. And if you took out, it was Sean Roden was one, and there was another competitor who didn't compete for like seven or eight years in there. If we remove that time where they had kind of a long hiatus, um, I think Sean's father had passed or was sick, and there, I don't know what the reason was for the other competitor. Then it was two and a half years from first show on record that I could find to the pro card. So those guys, yes, but that's a different caliber of pro than – Someone who snuck wins in. a regional show and gets a pro card, which they hand so out. Someone, like yeah, someone maybe. Yeah, let, let they, they're a uh, 
um, they, or welterweight maybe, and they got their card. I've known people even decades ago who got their cards at nationals and they first started giving them in the lower weight classes. And they just and they're too small even for the what was the two oh two and now is the two twelve. They're just too small. They just there's no there's no point whatsoever in trying to compete. They'll yeah. never be able to compete with those guys. So, I used to be an endurance athlete and I'd go to some races and it'd be like two people in my age category and I'd get second place. Right. I mean like what the I get I still get a second place trophy, like whoop de doo, but they're only two people in my category. It's like no shit. You know, <laughs> yeah. so the so the, there are people with genetics that are that just are not very very good. Um, you would have to really have lost the genetic lottery to be in a state where you can't gain muscle mass and you also can't lose body fat. Um, but there are there are people. There have been studies. Are, they put people. Are there people that literally cannot gain muscle? Like they like as I see people in the gym, they're in there every single day. They're working hard. They're getting, you know, I feel like they're getting the muscle breakdown necessary and they literally have not put on a pound of muscle in the past two years. Is there, are there people that literally, no matter how hard they work out, how long they work out, they just cannot put muscle? Is there, is there a percentage of people that you would say? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, in that, in that lecture, I've got several of the studies that have been done that have documented this over the course of two, three, four, five, six months studies, there's some percentage of people that will basically show no increase in muscle mass, either fiber cross-sectional area or whole muscle cross-sectional area. When other people will show, let's say if it's fiber cross-sectional, you have 50, 50 or plus percent increase in average fiber cross-sectional area from a, bi a biopsy. And those, and other people in that study, nothing. But they're still getting some benefits, though. It's still healthy. They're still building strong bones. They're still getting, you know, a workout. They're still relieving stress, right? Even if they're not seeing any physical results. I have to go and look if they document some of those things. There's probably going to be, for each of those variables, people that are not going to have an anxiolytic effect. Their, their blood lipids are not going to shift. They're going to get wow. no change. In. Now, I don't, that's what I'm saying. You have to really have lost the lottery on all accounts to get nothing in any of those realms that physical activity can benefit us. Like, well, at least they're not wasting their gym membership, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it depends on what they want out of it. Most people do. Nine out of 10 people do. At the end of a year, you've got like 10% adherence. In That's most true. Exercises. That's true. Most gyms actually lose membership. So we had you know, use your question, and this is a totally different subject, but he wants to know about baby aspirin a day. He said his doctor said, to take baby aspirin a day. Is that something that makes any sense or is that just bullshit? The ba yeah, the ba 80 milligrams of baby, baby aspirin, that's, that's to uh, prevent blood clotting. That's kind of an old school thing. You really need to go and look and get like a, a PTT, like a prothrombin time and a blood clotting um, time measure to see if you're at risk in any way, shape or form. But if that guy, I, I, Trevor, I think read some of this, um, this question to me, I didn't know it was about baby aspirin, but if that guy is like has elevated hematocrit and he's got, he's got poor blood lipids, um, then yeah, there's, there's data showing that that's not a bad idea. 80 milligrams is pretty low. Um, if you're taking NSAIDs can have issues in terms of preventing muscle growth. They, they, um, this is a whole other topic. Um, but there's a, um, basically sort of an inverted U response with um, 
adaptation to muscle growth. So you want to, it's called a hormetic response. Some stress is necessary in order to trigger the adaptations that come with muscle growth or increasing mitochondrial biogenesis, increasing insulin sensitivity. So for instance, if you take um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, you'll limit the protein synthetic response to a resistance exercise bout. Or if you megadose antioxidants, you'll prevent the increase in mitochondrial biogenesis that you, that you get when you do aerobic activity. So a larger dose, if the guy's like, you know, taking like a bunch of aspirin every day, he's probably going to run into gastrointestinal issues. His, his gut doesn't like that. And you could be limiting the adaptations to, to muscle growth or to um, increase in, in insulin sensitivity. I wouldn't worry about um, an 80 milligram baby aspirin in that regard. So that's can a you us, Can you give us any natural options in case people don't want to take drugs? They want to maybe a more natural solution to blood clotting or heart issues or something like that. What is a daily supplement they can take? Uh, fish oil works pretty well. Actually, you're better off using, um, actually eating fish um, and improving your, your blood lipid profile is a good idea. Generally, removing saturated fat in, for, for the average person and replacing that with polyunsaturated fat. Um, be specific as to examples of those fats. Canola oil, for example, would fall under what? Canola, people don't like that a whole lot. Saturated fats are when you find in red meat, for instance, is the most, most obvious version. The polyunsaturated fatty acids, like the omega-3s that you find in salmon. Nuts. Nuts are going to be, those are going to have more monounsaturated, and mm -hmm. those, are, those are generally healthy. It's a really interesting, and I cover this in the book because it's a really kind of fascinating topic. Um, you can find, for instance, that uh, coconut oil in epidemiological studies has a lot of what's, what is actually technically a saturated fat. Um, and in studies where they haven't um, differentiated between uh, fatty acids like um, muriatic acid or other saturated, like palmitic acid is one that probably is not the best. That's a, that's a saturated fatty acid you'll, you'll, from palm oil. Um, that saturated fatty acids are definitely not in your favor. But when they look at the saturated fat, fatty acid found in coconut oil, that's a good thing, generally speaking, in okay. what you find in the, in the cultures that eat those. So looking at the broad picture, the whole big scheme of things, in terms of your risk for cardiovascular disease or coronary incidence, generally removing saturated fat, but this wouldn't really count for, for coconut oil, replacing that with more polyunsaturated fat, which most people don't eat, um, which actually has an anti-inflammatory effect. Um, someone who's probably taken a little bit too much or eating a little too much salmon may notice that they, uh, they have trouble with clotting. I've done that in the past where I'm eating so much salmon and then you cut yourself somewhere and you just, you don't stop bleeding because it has, a, has an anticoagulant effect. That substitution of polyunsaturated fatty acids, which you'll find in like mackerel, um, a lot of uh, cold water fish are going to have more, more PUFAs in them, polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, you you want to know what's really interesting about coconut oil? What's that? So when they first categorized fats into monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, saturated, 
what they basically said is solid at room temperature, saturated, right? So they said coconut oil, solid at room temperature, saturated fat. Do you know what the melting point of coconut oil is? It's probably like, I would guess like 76 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. 33 degrees Celsius. What's that? So what's that? That's like 118 or something like that. And I get, I have coconut oil in the other room and it was, I just used it today and it was, it was in room temperature and it was liquid. So it varies actually. You can, um, from what I found. If, if you're in a very hot room, it will turn liquid. But, but anyways, if you're in like a standard air-controlled room, it'll be solid. But the, the, the point I was trying to make is that coconut oil melts at 33 degrees Celsius and human ambient body temperature is 38 degrees Celsius. 37, so, yeah. So it's actually a liquid in the human body. Yeah. So it's that whole saturated fat thing, that's like yeah, so, wrong so, information. So 30, well, it's... It's saturated because you don't have any double bonds between the carbons in like the lauric acid of the, um, the triglycerides that are there. So lauric acid is a medium chain, but fatty, but saturated fatty acid. But yeah, Dude. it is. So, so 33 degrees is that's, sorry, my, I was a little mixed up with my, uh, my conversion. That's probably got to be like, that's in the 90s actually 33 celsius it's like a very hot summer day yeah yeah that's in the 90s but anyway i think it varies i've noticed it varies when i get i was on the road when i bought this coconut oil and it's very very liquid at room temperature so so bottom line is what should we be cooking with which oil do you you recommend cooking with and not cooking with uh i like coconut oil that's the best one. What are, what are the, what's the second best? And give us a couple that are really bad that people are using. Uh, I'm trying to think of some bad ones people use. You, don't, you want something with a high smoke point. So macadamia nut oil is a good one as well. Okay. It's got a lot of monounsaturated fatty acids. And extra virgin olive oil is also a good one. But it has to be the real stuff, not the, because they do fake a lot. They... I think I read something that 50% of olive oil is some other oil and that legally they can do that. Yeah. You got to read the labels. Of course. Yeah. I mean, unless you know for sure this shit's like directly from Italy and it's legit olive oil. Don't trust that shit. Like don't trust the $4 thing of olive oil from Walmart because it's probably half of it is probably vegetable oil. Oils can go rancid too. They can oxidize pretty substantially. It's interesting. There was actually a study where they looked at the effects of, uh, of oxidized, really literally rancid fish oil, and it didn't matter as far as whether, as far as the impact on blood lipids, um, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, like if oil that's been sitting out or been like gotten really, really hot or been exposed to a lot of heat and or light, not good. So here's another, I got another user question here because this is, this ties into it. He says that he likes to eat at Whole Foods. He likes to eat at the hot food bar and he notices more and more things at the hot food bar contain canola oil. And he wants to know, according to Whole Foods, it's a it's something healthy. It's something safe. But according to what I've seen on YouTube, it is not. So he wants to know your opinion on that. First of all, do you, you, you live near Whole Foods, I'm assuming, right? Actually, I no, I don't. But there's there's one here in town where I am now. I haven't been to Whole Foods in, okay. well, gosh, at least five years. 
Boogie's in their hot food bar. A lot of their stuff is canola oil. And I'm guessing it's because they don't want to waste the food. It's a good preservative. So is that something people should be consuming? Uh, I don't know that as far as like what happens with your blood lipids goes. No, I mean, as, 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 as far as like health wise, is canola oil something okay to be consuming? Because the one the ingredient they use is expeller GMO free canola oil. That's probably okay. I wouldn't, I, if that's, that's actually the case, I, would, I wouldn't worry about that. Canola okay. oil has a bad reputation because of the oxidation, as far as I understand it, is that it, it just doesn't get treated very well. It's used so ubiquitously all over the place that you end up getting bad oxidized rancid oil um which isn't which isn't the best thing but you you should at home be using coconut oil you shouldn't be using canola oil correct i wouldn't use canola i use those other three macadamia nut oil extra extra virgin olive oil something that's high in monounsaturated fats i wouldn't try to cook with with like um you you it's interesting because you can cook salmon and you're still okay you're not ruining it but i wouldn't try to cook with like salmon oil or like flax oil Flax oil is actually great. Um, there's actually good evidence that flat, more flax oil consumption is good, but that's probably because of the lignans that are in the flax, not because of the type of fatty acids contained in the flax oil itself. Flax so, oil becomes rancid very easily, so you never want to cook with it. Yeah, you, yeah, that's not a good one. It, you can tell it does, like it kind of. Uh, <laughs> I've never used flax oil, so I wouldn't know. Yeah, that would be, yeah. You don't want to. I wouldn't go with flax oil. If I don't even think they have flax oil in the liquid flax oil. Keep it in the fridge, and then like add it to shakes or things like that. Yeah, you never want to cook with it. Yeah. Um, our next question is from the big dog Scott. Hey Trevor, first off, love the podcast and the forum. Learned so much from it. My question for Doctor Scott is: If on TRT. Do you need to wait as long between cycles? As my natural levels are very low, I was wondering, is it so recommended to take a good size break between going back on a cycle? Thanks. So we're we're totally jumping topics now. Um, So I cover this in the book actually as well. What what I've kind of done is broken down um, and tried to ask some questions to help people figure out what their perspective is going to be. So if you're going on on a steroid cycle and you're alternating between that and TRT, you're not recovering your hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis. It's basically staying depressed the entire time. So um, the pro- and this is just sort of an empirical finding. Um, I don't know that I've ever, ever seen this because this, this isn't maybe the thing that you're going to get money to study. But if um, the longer you are, you're on be that TRT or uh, a stero- a cycling back and forth, the less likely you're going to be able to recover your own endogenous testosterone production. So almost no matter how long he takes, if he's not doing some sort of post-cycle therapy, um, somewhere in there, he's got very little assurance that he's ever going to restore endogenous testosterone production and probably less and less likelihood the longer he continues that TRT cycle, TRT pattern to give us um from from what you've seen over the years i mean for me looking at blood work it seems to be like once you hit the 18 20 week mark then you're you start really running the risk of having a very hard time recovering and i've never once seen someone on the forum actually recover who's been on like six months or a year they've tried 
but they have not. Have you seen anything like that? Because Mark, I think it's Mark, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Dave Palumbo claims that he came off steroids and his natural testosterone levels are like eight, 900, which huh? um, I'm very skeptical, skeptical about, but um, because I've never seen it, but maybe it is possible. So like, what, what have you seen from your uh, patients and data? Well, I don't treat patients in that regard. Um, I can have patients as an acupuncturist. I just call them clients most of the time. I have had clients that have used uh, Michael Scali's power um, program for wellness restoration, P-O-W-E-R, P-C-T, which is the same one that Bill Llewellyn recommends, and restore spermatogenesis, restore fertility, restore endogenous production, and actually father a child after years of being on and off. Um, so that, but that's yeah. not, that's not recovering your HPTA. That's just boosting your sperm count temporarily. I'm talking about like coming off and actually like having 800, 900 testosterone levels, having a five, six, five or six LH level, like legitimately having your HPTA completely recover. This is a difference because that, that PCT, I would never recommend that PCT to someone trying to recover because it's just throwing drugs at the problem. It's not really your body recovering. Yes, this person did fully recover without the use of any exogenous drugs. So that, was, that did actually happen. Okay, so it is. And how long were they on? For a year. I mean, I have to go for years okay. on and off. A longtime competitor. Okay, so it is possible, but, yeah. like, it's probably, like, not – it's probably going to be difficult to do it. Like – It's all over the map. Some people yeah. have really, really robust hypothalamic pituitary testicular axes. Some people – some people cycle and they're fucked. That's it. I had, when I was at um, Body Power this year in the U.K., I had a, uh, a couple kids come up to me, young, young guys, um, they were teenagers when they started doing this. One of them was maybe 20 and they just, they were messing around with pro hormones and things they were reading about on the board. And this is a, this is a young kid. So it, he hadn't been doing this for very, very long at all. And he was shut down. He'd been shut down for like a year. Um, I don't know that he tried, he tried a couple things. You know, I can't recall exactly what the details were. This was you know, six months ago, but he was, that was it. He was shut down. But Any particular any particular theory as to why some people just don't run a couple cycles and boom, they're shut down for life, but other guys can run steroids for years and then come off and completely recover like, like your guy? Oh, that's a really good question, man. I, w- I, wish, I wish I could answer that because that'd give me some insight as to how to, you know, people could come back more easily. So it's just some ge- random genetic freaky thing, maybe. Well, I mean, there's, for instance... There's all sorts of things, and I cover this in the book as well, that um, dictate how well someone responds to gear. So there are variations in like the androgen receptor, um, a couple of different places. One that's been documented pretty, really, um, pretty well as far as sensitivity of the androgen receptor to androgens based on a, a certain section of the, of the gene that changes the shape of the interceptor. So you can have it's a section that codes for a glutamine amino acid receptor is a protein. And it can range from like, I've seen like eight to maybe up to like, I think I saw 42 in one particular study. So the shorter that section of glutamine repeats, the more sensitive the energy receptor. 
um, we may have lost either other is. So it could be that there's something to do with the antigen receptor receptivity in the brain. There's different when the when an antigen comes into the cell. If we're talking about sort of classical antigen receptor binding in the cell, it dimerizes. There's some chaperone-like proteins that bring it in that will dictate where that antigen receptor binds in the DNA to the antigen receptor elements and brings about whatever changes in the cell metabolism, whatever proteins get expressed when the antigen's doing its job in the cell. Those vary depending on whether we're talking about the skin or the testes or um, the hypothalamus or the pituitary or bone or skeletal muscle or what have you. So there's probably polymorphisms. There's probably some variability in just as you see when people, some people get horrible acne. Some people don't get any acne from some things. Some people grow like weeds. Some people don't grow hardly at all. There's antigen insensitivity syndrome. That can actually, that's actually a real thing where people, and you see this, some guys will, they're pretty sure they're taking everything they possibly can. They know it's legit and they just don't grow. So there's non-responders to antigens. There's probably some variations there in terms of um, sensitivity of, in the brain to the negative inhibitory feedback that comes from estrogen and um, androgens. So we've got, we know there's, and this is, this is a totally unknown one. Um, have you guys heard about finasteride, post, post-finasteride syndrome? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what's going on there molecularly. You know, that's, that's something, something's going on there um, such that there's sort of a permanent dysregulation uh, in the, and some of it's in sex drive as well as endogenous product, hormone production in people that have used finasteride for a while. Basically, it just sort of shuts down um, their libido in, for a long-term period. It happens to some, but not everybody. If it happened to everyone, we'd have figured this out long ago, I would imagine. I mean, there's, there's probably some part pharmaceutical cover-up. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the studies that they did, they were finding this in some people, and they just like, ah, whatever, they're outliers, or they just didn't disclose I'm not saying they did or they didn't, but I wouldn't be surprised if that did happen. But now we're finding years later, and it maybe takes a while for this to happen, people have this post-finasteride syndrome. Some of that's up in the brain. The isn't, brain that maybe, isn't that, though, maybe because you're blocking DHT, maybe, maybe by blocking DHT for a period of time, your, your, you know, your body kind of adjusts maybe. It's kind of like someone who's insulin um, resistant, you build that is insulin resistance over time and then it never, it has a really hard time reversing. Do you think that might be it? Well, I think, I think your question, Steve was, was about differences that may explain why is that some people get shut down more so than others, or some can recover and some can't. So the post anastride syndrome is another example where, whereby androgen metabolism seems to affect some people dramatically differently than it does others. That's the, that's the bizarre thing. So there's some variability here. Some people are really robust. Some people aren't. Same thing happens um, to women with birth control. And there's a bunch of different kinds of birth control. And I'm in no way, shape, or form an expert on those. They've, they've got like dozens of different kinds that have been used over the years. But some people do really some women do really really poorly with birth control and they have a really hard time restarting their cycle i've known female competitors who've been on really substantially large cycles like like one who was doing uh testosterone actually at i think 500 milligrams and she was 
having, she would have a period the week of her show if she was unlucky enough with that much testosterone in her system. You would think that would totally disrupt normal uh, menstrual and ovarian cycling, but it wasn't in her case. That's like but, a full dosage a man would take. I know, I know. Like, how can this friggin' be? But it would happen to her. And she'd be, of course, pissed. Are you pissed. sure her gear was real? Say what? Are you sure her gear was real? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a friend of mine. Yeah, it was so, something she was using was real. Yes, without a doubt, because she was getting all the androgenic side effects. I, I knew a guy who was using 250 milligrams of testosterone a week from the pharmacy, and his testosterone levels were only like 300. Yeah. Yeah, and then like people are like, they're like, "Oh, your stuff is fake." He's like, "I'm getting it from the pharmacy. I'm getting it from my doctor. How can it be fake?" Well, now we know why. I mean, from now on, we're just going to link this podcast and be like, "See, it's possible." Some people just don't respond. There's um, yeah. I mean, I've I've had clients that I've I've sent to doctors for for hormone replacement, older clients when they needed it, and um, and they've reported back to me that they some that's the one of the hardest things is that doctors because they're scared of getting in trouble, they don't want to prescribe at doses that land their, their, their patients in a normal testosterone range. So like that guy might have needed 400 milligrams a week just to get up to eugonadal sta- status for his age group, much less optimizing, you know, in the seven or 800 level. There's an, we know at least there's an enzyme of phosphodiesterase 7B is the name of the enzyme. It's in the liver that's responsible for cleaving away the fatty acid from an esterified uh, androgen like nandrolone or testosterone. And if there's two, at least two variations of that. And in one case, if you're quote unquote lucky, you get 60% greater area under the curve or basically 60% greater bioavailability um, from just like a testosterone enanthate or sipinate if you have that particular enzyme. So that wouldn't explain this poor guy who is like getting nothing. You think his stuff is fake, but yeah, the, the I, one of them, a couple, actually a couple of my clients who work with, um, I, I can't really, I shouldn't say the doctor. He's probably the best known hormone replacement therapy doctor. You've probably seen it. It's YouTube videos. And he, the term he's used is rap, a rapid excreter. So like it's probably a glucuronidation. So androgens will be one way they're removed in the liver is um, uh, a, a glucose-based mode will be added to them so they increase increases solubility and they can just be, be peed out. So they become sulfated or glucuronidated and then they can be excreted more rapidly. So some people have more active enzymes for that process. So they just get well, rid of it really quickly. Well, Trevor wants me to finish it, but I'll say this. All the sources out there, all the underground bathtub gear being produced Link this podcast because now when your customers say the gear didn't do shit for them or it was underdosed, you can just link this podcast and be like, see, Dr. Scott Stevenson said you might be in how to responder. So no, our gear is not garbage. That, that, that would be a <laughs> piece of information, really, because <laughs> if you're going to claim that, we have to have data to see what does the distribution look like? What's the likelihood if you give subjects – X amount, 200 milligrams per week, where is the midpoint and what's the distribution? That guy was an outlier. Mm-hmm. So what, what, are, what are our likely possibilities? You know, if you have five people who all use 250 a, a week and they're all coming back hypogonadal like that, 
Well, that, that, that would be pretty extraordinary, I think, because that, that person is an outlier. He's unusual in that regard. Like, that's the lowest I've ever heard um, of someone on that kind of a dose. Like, that's above what normally you would give, and that's still, you know, at the bottom end. So you can't really do that. If you're looking, this is, you, you, you actually, Steve, you, unknowingly, you, you, you tapped into one of my pet peeves where people like to take, take science and scientific information and sort of misuse it to a certain degree. Um, and that's what they would be doing uh, to say, oh, this is an explanation for everything. No, we need to look at the big picture. This person- but that's America, baby. That's the fitness industry. That's what they do all the time, the supplement companies. That, that may be the they case. That doesn't that. mean that I'm, that I'm not going to battle against it. You know, that doesn't make it right. Dr. Just Susan, because- I, got one more, I got one more question for you. Yeah. So all this talk about genetics. There's all these companies get, uh, selling these genetic testing kits that you can buy on Amazon for like 200 bucks. Do any of these have any merit? Which, which are you talking about like a 23andMe and my family? Yeah, there's like 23andMe and, and I think there's like muscle genes. And I've seen, I've seen a couple of YouTube ads where it's like, you know, you take this kit and then it's going to tell you your genetics. And it's going to tell you, you know, whether you respond to high carbs. Jerry, it's old Jerry Ward. He was 1%, he was 1% African. So now Jerry Ward's telling people he's black. That's, okay. that's that was probably a, a haplo group analysis or something. 1% of the people with his haplotype, which is, that's a conserved area of the gene. So like the muscle genes one, and, and I haven't, um, Trevor, I haven't, it's been probably a year and a half or a year or so since I looked into those and followed up on their references. Um, there are a couple of things. Um, even in the, even the good ones like Ancestry or the ones that are well-known that aren't trying to proclaim that there's some like magical information they have that tell you how to train or how to eat. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a study that came out recently. There's a 40% false positive rate for... Uh, genes for lots of disease states that people were checking for so they can be wrong they're not doing a very good job in terms of accuracy at least in those so that's an issue um can you guys still hear me i'm i think you both have me on mute i'm just making sure okay good yeah yeah we hear you all right, all right cool um the here's the missing piece from what i've seen and i haven't i haven't seen any data there could be some things i'm not aware of but you do you do a study and let's say you look at a gene for for actin or you look at some particular gene and it tells you about how well people respond um, to training or it tells you about performance level to some degree or muscle mass it's predictive in some way shape or form that's different than a study that takes people and uh, applies a training regimen or a dietary regimen to them and then tries to sort out and explain after the fact why some people respond and other people didn't. Or starts off with an a priori hypothesis that this gene that's responsible for carbohydrate metabolism or fat metabolism or what have you is going to make these people more likely to do well in terms of fat loss when they have a low-carb or a high carb type diet. That data haven't those. Th- that's the claim that's being made, is that this genetic analysis will in some way tell you how you should train or how you should eat or what have you. Those studies are out there that I'm at least not published that I'm aware of. I think I've seen claims that those companies have um, that data someplace, 
but I've never seen it. I've seen people post their results um, where they have some detailed analysis of, of what they're supposedly being told. I've never seen anything to substantiate that. So that's, that's the missing piece. Um, Trevor did it actually. We got his results yesterday. He's 80% black and 20% French Canadian, but I don't see it. I mean, he looks just like a white guy to me. I don't know. I don't see it. Did you, did you know what your Neanderthal percentage is, Trevor? No? I guess my girlfriend's sleeping with a black guy. I'll text her and let her know. <laughs> does that, does that, did you actually have like a muscle genes analysis done or, or another no, company? I never did. Okay. okay. I, I, I was very skeptical, so I never spent the money. Yeah. They're, they're just, they're, they're making a kind of a conceptual leap there that I don't see any data to, to, uh, to, to substantiate that that argument i just i just can't see how some 200 dollars test is going to really be able to accurately analyze your dna it's just you the 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 cost of you can do like a well, i think it's a thousand dollars to do basically a full genome now for an individual so 200 bucks is not an unreasonable I mean, it got it it cost a hundredfold more when they first started when they first did the human with the human genome project years ago um so yeah for 200 bucks they could go in and if they had those data that suggest, you know, people with this, this polymorphism, this variation of this gene um, lose fat more rapidly with a ketogenic diet versus a high-carb diet. And these people who have this gene should train with um, heavier loads, you know, in the tw 8 to 12 rep range and not do, you know, higher rep training or what have you. If those data were there... Um, then that would make sense. You could do a $200 test and, uh, and you could actually give someone some reasonable information, but I don't see that those data are there. They're, they make leaps like, um, I think it's the actin three gene that's predictive of, of, uh, sprinting performance. Um, that may be the one where the, the, the prediction was significant in men, but not women. There's some of that are gender specific too. So it kind of makes you wonder, okay, what the hell's going on here? Is this sort of a, we need to replicate these studies if we're going to actually um, uh, make anything of them, because why would the gender make a difference in terms of something, you know, basic to skeletal muscle architecture? So there's some genes that just basically allow you to figure out like why people are faster versus uh, not so fast or why they have more strength or whatever it may be, but it doesn't tell you about adaptation to training or response to dietary regimen. So just, they're just missing those pieces. They can kind of say, uh, let's say that you have this gene and you have faster muscle. Let's say, I don't, I'm just making this one up now. So that does, and then they'll say, well, you should train with higher loads because you're going to activate, you know, type two X muscle more. So when you do that, something like that, and that's, even a bit wishy-washy. So they make like a double leap and, and unless you're used to digging this kind of science, you don't see the logical fallacy that they're, they're putting forth. So yeah, I'm not in favor of those at least yet. Eventually we'll do that. Eventually we should be able to um, give people a massive amount of information and really, really target training and dietary regimens with, with genetic information, but the data aren't there yet as far as I know. So, Dr. Stevenson, where can I listen to buy your book? Be your own bodybuildingcoach.com or byobbcoach.com. Byobbcoach. I like that. That's funny. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it, I'm like 
buy your own, bring your own beer. No, it's byobbcoach.com. Please remember. That's funny. And for our listeners, if you want to listen to the other episode we did with Dr. Scott Stevenson, go to evolutionary.org front slash podcast and check out episode 180. Dr. Scott Stevenson, we really appreciate you coming on this show a second time. Cool. You're welcome. And for all of our listeners, I will have the link to his book in the show notes. Check it out. How much is it? There's a PDF for 60 bucks on my site. If you get the $100 for the um, hardback on Amazon. So it's uh, the PDF. The thing that I like about that is it's hyperlinked extraordinarily. So you can read through table of context, hyperlinks. I hyperlink to sections you're reading about overtraining. You want to talk about the perceived recovery status scale. You can jump back to that. You can jump around and keep your place as you jump from topic to topic and absorb the information. We're recording this end of September. So for our listeners, buy his PDF. And then on Cyber Monday, buy yourself a Kindle for like 50 bucks. And you're all set. There we go. Yeah, there is a Kindle version on Amazon, but I don't like, I don't like the way the Kindle flows. There's, you know, it's, a free, it's a different file format and it flows weirdly. You can do that if you like. It costs more. Um, some people are like, well, you know, which one should I buy that gets you the most money? And actually the Kindle's at the bottom of that list. They just, they take everything when you put a Kindle out there, I guess, because they presume a lot of people will buy them. I hate, I put a couple of my eBooks up on Amazon and I actually took them down because the four, they totally screws up the formatting. Yeah, it moves pictures all around and sometimes the picture will not be where it is. It doesn't make sense to have it there because the text is two pages away and yeah, I don't like it much either. PDFs organized the way I'd like to have it. If anyone from Amazon is listening to this podcast, get your shit together. Your, uh, your <laughs> eBook upload system sucks. Well, the way I did all this on my own, I edited the whole thing myself and I used a program called Calibre and literally when you're, when I was creating the EPUB, there were like 30 different devices and sort of uh, semi formats I could have constructed for. So part of it's that is like, if you, if you want to make it work well on a Kindle, it's not going to work that well on a Nook or any of like all the other Toshiba and various other e e-readers that are out there. So it's the, the file format isn't really universal. It's, it's um, kind of specific, I think, to, to one reader, and then it just gets screwed up everywhere else. That's, that's my guess, at least. For your host, Trevor Critton, for my co-host, Steve Spee, and for our special guest, Dr. Scott Stevenson, this has been another episode of Evolutionary Radio. Live your life, look good doing it. Thanks for listening. That was another great episode. Thank you so much for listening. Now that we're done recording, I just want to take a quick second to talk with one of the sponsors that makes this podcast possible. Please check out needtobuildmuscle.com if you're looking for hardcore dietary supplements designed for the hard training athlete. These are products designed specifically for steroid users and people who are just looking to take their training to the next level. The guest of this podcast is not affiliated with this company in any way. These are just products that Steve and myself both personally use needtobuildmuscle.com. You can use coupon code TREVOR10 to get 10% off your entire order. Thanks for listening to the podcast and thank you for being a loyal evolutionary radio supporter.